Amen. Well, again, uh, for maybe the third or fourth time, good morning, everybody. Uh, grace and peace to you. Uh, how was Thanksgiving? Good? Good. All right. Well, Christmas decorations are up, but one more week. You're going to have to wait. Um, we're continuing our mini-series in First Peter. And uh, throughout this series, we've been considering what it means to follow Christ in a post-Christian society. Not yet persecuted, but socially marginalized, on the outside looking in. And thus far, in Peter's counsel, he has addressed both our inner disposition and our outward actions. Inwardly, he calls us to two things, and those are to hope and to fear. That is, to fear God and not man to sanctify Christ in our hearts as Lord and not fear the threats and the intimidation of the world, and to set our hope entirely upon the coming kingdom. Fix your hope completely, chapter 1, verse 13, on the grace that is to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those are the two things mainly that Peter wants from us on the inside, to be people of great hope and to be people of godly Fear. And then outwardly, as it pertains to our actions, Peter calls us to live lives of moral beauty. Keep your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, he says, chapter 2, verse 12, that they may see and glorify God on the day of visitation. He calls us also to submission. The middle section of 1 Peter, chapter 3 through 4, is all about this idea of submitting to those who are over us. And lastly, he calls us to honor all people, even those that are harsh and cruel, even those that are against us, to show honor to them. That's his outward strategy. Now, this week, and there's more to say, right? I wish we had a lot of time. I just wish we had, had time to do a whole series in Peter. There's more I would like to say and that Peter really gets at. But what we'll do as we just draw this mini-series to a close um, is just end where Peter does. Um, and that's on a note of comfort and assurance. He wants his audience, and of course us reading this many thousands of years removed, he wants us to end in comfort and assurance. Again, in these closing verses, he's not so interested in practical strategy as much as reminding us that we can trust ourselves to God, that he cares for us in the midst of our anxiety and suffering, and that ultimately he has good designs for us, namely, as Peter says in verse 10, his eternal glory. So I think what Peter is kind of saying is, for all that we can do, right, it's good, we should do it, we should try to live good lives, he says, ultimately, it comes down to God. Ultimately, it's about him, and that's where he ends this. So three points this morning. Uh, first, uh, a point that pertains to humility and anxiety and how those two fit together. Second, a point about uh, spiritual alertness and faith and how we can use those to resist the enemy. And then the final point is simply once more about our hope about what God has called us to in Christ. So let's begin with the first of those points and pick up in verses 6 and 7. Peter says, beginning in verse 6, Therefore, 
humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, Peter, remember, is writing to churches facing rather severe social persecution. They're being mistreated. They're being reviled. So so harsh and evil things are being spoken against them. And they're being shamed for their allegiance to Christ and his gospel. And here, at the end of his letter, Peter sums up, really, all that he's been saying so far by saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. In essence, what he's telling these churches and us is not to kick or to revolt against our lowly position in society as strangers and exiles, as those who are ridiculed and mocked, but rather to humbly accept it, to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. What Peter is saying is that your situation, our situation as the church, as strangers and exiles in the world, is from God. This situation is from God, and it's only for a time. Shortly, humiliation will give way to exaltation. Now, Peter's doing some interesting things in this verse, so let's just take a look at him. First, Peter makes an allusion to the Exodus narrative with the phrase, the mighty hand of God. If you read Exodus particularly, but also Deuteronomy, you'll find that that phrase, the mighty hand of God, appears throughout both those books. And it refers specifically to the plagues that God brought down upon Pharaoh and his empire. The scripture says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. And it's this mighty hand of God, the one that smote the Egyptians and delivered the Israelites from bondage, that Peter is telling us to submit or to humble ourselves under. So what Peter is doing here is he's drawing a connection between our present experience as aliens and strangers and the experience of the Exodus generation. Just like them before us, we suffer in a foreign land that is not our home, under oppressive and unjust rule. And maybe not specifically us, but believers spread across the world. However, Peter says, God will soon deliver us. He will stretch forth his mighty hand and lead his people into freedom. In other words, what Peter's saying is, we don't need to take things into our own hands, weak as they are. We can trust ourselves to the omnipotent hand of God who will deliver us at the proper time. So when he says that we're to humble ourselves under God's hand, what he means is that we are to submit ourselves to God's plan. Peter's telling us that our present suffering and exile are not an accident. In God's unsearchable goodness and wisdom, he has chosen this path for us. He wills us to undertake 
this fiery ordeal, as Peter calls it in chapter 4, verse 12. Therefore, because our present situation is from God, because sometimes things are hard as a believer among our family, at, at work, or wherever we find ourselves, it says, because these things are from God, rather than raging against them, Rather than trying to change our station in life, Peter says we are to meekly accept it because it comes from God's hand. This is the way he's chosen to order things. And again, this is reflected all throughout the letter. He tells his audience to submit yourselves to every human institution, chapter 2, verse 13, rather than trying to overthrow the present order. He says that household servants are to be submissive to their masters with all respect, chapter 2, verse 18, instead of rebelling against them. Wives, too, are to be submissive to their husbands, chapter 3, verse 1. Young men are not to be headstrong, but subject to their elders, chapter 5, verse 5. Then he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, chapter 5, verse 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, Peter's counsel here is reminiscent of Psalm 37. And he's actually already quoted this psalm earlier in chapter 3. That psalm opens in verse 1 saying, Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Instead, it continues in verses 5 and 6, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. In other words, what the psalm is telling us, what Peter is also counseling, is to not take matters into our own hands because of frustration or anxiety. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. In fact, the psalmist will say later, verse 8, it only leads to evil doing. Rather, he says, trust in God. Leave it to Him, your situation, your present circumstances, because God will act. Humble yourselves under His mighty hand until He takes up your case, and He pleads your case and vindicates you, as that psalm says, to bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as noonday. God will take care of it. So I want to encourage those among us, especially those who face ridicule and humiliation from unbelievers on a consistent basis, I want to encourage you, as the psalm says, not to fret, not to give way to anxiety or frustration or even anger. Don't stoop to their level, returning insult for insult or barb for barb. As the scripture says, James chapter 1, verse 20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, it might feel good to vent your emotions. You might feel that you are accomplishing something, but ultimately, the scripture says that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Leave it to him. Leave your case to God and continue to do good. As Peter says, Be submissive, be respectful, return blessing for evil and kindness for insult. Leave your case to God. Now why? Well, Peter says, chapter 5, verse 5, God is opposed to the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. That's why we should ultimately leave these things to God. You know, the arrogance and contempt of unbelievers against us incites God's determined opposition. It's something that when he sees it, he opposes it because it's proud, because it's arrogant. And if we retaliate, and if we become arrogant ourselves, then the logic goes, and what Peter means to say, is that God will then be opposed to us. Instead, he says, we must pursue a course of humility under the divine hand because it evokes grace from God. It's something that when God sees, that he's favorable toward. It finds favor in his sight. So that's one reason. Another is because, and this is a theme that runs all throughout the letter, this is how God chose to deal with Christ. And the servant is not above the master. God determined that Christ, his own son, should take the road that led to crucifixion. His natural life ended not in glory, but in abject humiliation. And God has determined, for whatever reason in his eternal counsels, that we should take that same road. That we should suffer alongside our Master and Lord in this world. That's the way he's chosen for us. So he says, don't resist it, don't fight against it, but humble yourself. As Christ humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. However, if being under God's hand communicates a trustful submission on our part, just recognizing this is what God has chosen and I submit myself to his will, I will patiently and trustingly accept this. That's what it communicates on our part. On God's part, it communicates his care for us. We are under the protection of his strong hand, sheltered from our enemies. And though he does permit us to suffer, even to lose our lives for his sake, he will not permit us to be ultimately destroyed. His hand stays the power of death and hell. Thus, Peter's point is not to simply put us in our place, but rather to call us to entrust ourselves to God in the most radical sense. Now, more on that concept in just a moment when we get to verse 7. For now, the promise is that as we humble ourselves under God's hand, he will exalt us at the proper time. That as we take that path of humility, at the proper time, God will raise us up. We are presently under his hand, but soon his hand will be under us to raise us up to glory. Then, as Psalm 37 says, our vindication and our justice will come. It will shine forth like the noonday, and our patient trust in him, in his plan, and in the way he's chosen to do things, will be rewarded with glory and honor and praise. As Peter says, on that day of, of visitation, all of it will be revealed. On that day, things will be stood on their heads, or better, things will be stood right side up. The scripture says in Isaiah 2, 17, that the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased. And then all the lowly 
who have suffered in obedience to Christ will be exalted. And they will shine like sun in the kingdom of their father, Matthew 13, 43. The tables will be turned. And all those nameless believers who suffer for the, name, for the sake of Christ will be exalted. They'll have a place far above what any of us could imagine. So we put our hope in those words at the proper time. We humble ourselves now, trusting God, but we know at the proper time He's going to act. He will vindicate us. And this too follows the pattern of Christ's life. His humiliation was not final. It gave way to exaltation. That corn of, uh, crown of thorns, rather, that cruel and evil men twisted into his scalp was cast aside. And he was raised up to be seated at the right hand of God and crowned with glory and honor and majesty as the Lord of heaven and earth. And as Peter says, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Chapter 4, verse 13. As Christ was humbled, so we are humbled. As Christ is exalted, so we will be exalted. So, God summons us to humbly submit to his will, bearing patiently under insult and mistreatment until the proper time. But in the meantime, he invites us to cast all our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. Verse 7. That is, though God does indeed call us to suffer the consequences of our allegiance to his son, he promises to take care of us, whatever might befall us. You can imagine he's writing to believers who are going to pay a pretty high cost for their allegiance to Christ. Obviously, their social standing, that's out the door. So their reputation, but shortly it would be potentially their livelihood. Some of them, maybe even their own lives. He says, stand firm, but he also says, God cares for you. You can give all your anxieties about all this stuff to him. Now, do, do you believe that? Do you believe that God cares for you? Well, he does. As Peter has made clear from the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, he says that God has chosen you. Just pause for a minute. Think of that. God has chosen you. That is, God set his love upon you before the foundation of the earth. And for what reason? Because you're lovable? Because you're somehow deserving of his choice? Well, not quite. The scripture says that God loves you just because he loves you. He loves you just because he does. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. So because you were this mighty and impressive group of people, Moses says, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Then he says, the Lord loved you because the Lord loved you. But because the Lord loved you. God's love is its own explanation. God loves you because he does. He chose you in his son before anything was created. And that means 
that you're precious in His sight for Jesus' sake. Your life is precious to God. It's something He created. It's something He looks after. It's something that He intends to be with Him for ages and ages to come. It is precious to Him. He cares for you. And there's nothing that you can do to change that or to upset that. If God loved you because of something in you, His love would change. Because we are inconsistent, because we're not always righteous or obedient or ever righteous or obedient. God cares for you because he cares for you, and you can't ever change that. Therefore, Peter says, cast all your anxieties upon him. You're not raising your anxious cry to a God callous and cruel, but to a God who cares for you with the same care that he has for his own beloved son. That's who you're praying to, Peter wants you to know. Therefore, release your anxieties. Uh, Tim Keller says that anxiety is always a refusal to see how much God loves you, how much God cares for you. I'll say that again. Anxiety is always a refusal to see how much God loves you, how much God cares for you. In other words, anxiety is due to a lack of faith. Now, certainly, I just want to stop and be clear. There are certain clinical forms of anxiety that are rooted in hormonal imbalances, even in brain problems, and other similar issues. However, what we don't want that to do is obscure the fact that much anxiety in our lives is simply due to good old-fashioned unbelief. That is, though we know God cares for us intellectually speaking, Like, I get that on the page. I get that as a doctrine. We don't always believe it or rest in it. Instead, we drive ourselves mad with anxiety, thinking that it all depends on us. That if I don't take care of it, that if I don't see to it, it won't happen. Have you ever been in a relationship without any trust? Where it breaks down to such a degree that Maybe you've done nothing wrong, but the other person, a friend or a spouse or a parent, is always suspicious of you, asking where you've been, looking through your phone, when you think, I've done nothing to show you that I've been wrong. That's a terribly frustrating place to be. Well, that's a bit what unbelief is like. It's always a stab at the integrity of God's character and love. He's given us no reason to distrust him. He's given us no reason ultimately to think that he won't take care of us. And yet anxiety is always a suspicion of God. Now that sounds harsh. You're thinking, I have anxiety and now you're telling me it's my fault. Well, not quite. Anxiety is not imaginary and neither are your problems, whatever they are. However, the solution always remains a confident trust in God's care. That's always the ultimate solution. And we shouldn't give our anxiety too much credit or make it out to be the fundamental thing. Hence, Peter says, prior to this, humble yourselves. And again, that seems like another harsh thing to say to people who are experiencing anxiety, but it's exactly right on. And why? Well, because oftentimes anxiety results from an implicit pride, a hidden belief Again, that unless I do it, no one will. A hidden belief that I am my own keeper. 
And the good news is that that, that is simply not true. God is decisive and not us. So to these believers and to us who are in that position of anxiety, Peter says, you're giving yourself too much credit and you're taking too much on your plate. Offload it and cast your anxieties upon God. It's vain for you to rise up early and to go late to rest, the psalmist says, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Psalm 127, verse 2. And again, behold, he who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. Psalm 121, verses 4 and 5. And again, look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Matthew 6.26 So Peter's counsel to us at the end is simply to humble ourselves because, in the last estimation, it's not up to us. The Lord is our keeper. He says, instead, be loyal to Christ. Be loyal to his cruciform way. Be prepared to suffer the consequences because God will not fail you. He will watch after you in your humble estate. And on the last day, he will raise you up and receive you into everlasting glory. That's the promise. Trust yourself to God. Cast your anxieties upon him and be faithful and be obedient. So that's the first point, which brings us now to the second point. And Peter has to say now in verses 8 and 9, Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So here, Peter urges us to adopt a humble trust in God. However, that humble trust does not mean that we slip into a state of relaxed passivity. Though God releases us from anxious care, from fretting, from wringing our hands about these things, He does not release us from all care. He urges us to keep sober and alert. Why? Because Peter says, verse 8, our adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are not to have anxious care, but we should have a vigilant care, a sober alertness to the reality of spiritual evil. So what does it mean to keep sober and alert? What does that look like for us? Well, we should note that this entire passage takes place in the context of the the shepherding metaphor. In the previous verse, chapter 5, verse 4, Peter says that Christ is the chief shepherd. He says in chapter 5, verse 2, that we are the flock of God. And of course, now in verse 8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. So we have this shepherding context. So in the first place, we have the comfort and assurance that though we are helpless sheep, our shepherd, the greater David, watches after us. I am the good shepherd, he says, John 10, 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We might wander from the flock, or we might even be carried away by a predatory beast, but the shepherd comes after us. 
rod and staff in hand to deliver us. He keeps a sober and alert watch, and we are counseled to keep awake with him, to be alert with the alertness of our chief shepherd. See, because we're not in the sheepfold yet. We're still out in the open pasture, and the landscape can be treacherous, and creatures roam about, and we don't have the liberty in our present circumstances to let our guard down, to be nonchalant about our decisions and actions. The stakes are high, Peter wants us to know, and therefore we must act accordingly. So take care, is the counsel. Be sober, be alert. Now what's interesting here is that the devil, and you guys know this, he's often depicted as a cunning and crafty foe in the scriptures. He appears as a serpent in the beginning, more crafty than any beast of the field, Genesis 3.1. He disguises himself, the Apostle Paul says, as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11.14. His power, in other words, is in his subtlety and his ability to lead you off guard ever so slightly. And that's what makes the description of him here stand out. The devil is not a sneaking snake, but a roaring lion. And what it does, I think, is suggest something to us about his tactics. He aims to terrify us, to make us afraid, and to fill us with these anxieties that Peter is talking about. That's his work. There's nothing subtle or crafty about a roaring lion. He's not trying to trick you or to deceive you. He's trying to intimidate you, to cow you into submission with fear. And Peter's audience, remember, is in that exact situation. They haven't experienced the bite, so to speak. No one's being cast into jail. No one's property is being taken from them. No one's being martyred. Instead, threats and intimidation are being hurled against them. These the threats and intimidation of their neighbors is the roar of the lion. He would frighten them, these poor believers, into compromise and disobedience and ultimately, if he could, even apostasy. So his power, as it's portrayed to us here, is rooted in fear. Now, it's something we should realize, especially as that pressure is notched up against us. And as we find ourselves more and more in sort of a marginalized situation, is that the devil would seek to control us to get to do his bidding through fear. And what he does is he preys upon your natural cares, your natural need for shelter, for provision, and for safety. He takes those things And then he turns them into overwhelming anxieties. And that's how he gets us to do our will. So you think, right, at work or on campus or among your family members, if I don't go along with it, then I'll lose my job. And who's going to take care of my family? Natural provision, a natural need, Satan takes it and turns it into an overwhelming anxiety. And they think, so I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to go along with it to protect my lot in this world. Or you think, you know, if I speak up, if I let them know where I truly stand, my friends or my family, they'll reject me. 
and I can't bear being lonely, right? I can't handle that situation. So again, a natural need is turned into an overwhelming anxiety. And those are the kind of thoughts that Satan puts in our minds. The fear that he stokes up in our hearts. And Peter says now, verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. The way that we resist the devil is by refusing to succumb to his temptations to be faithless and fearful in the midst of suffering. In other words, though our adversary might devour our reputations and our relationships and even our livelihoods because of our allegiance to Christ, we cannot let him devour our faith. It's the only means that we have to resist him. In Revelation, Jesus is speaking to the church at Smyrna, who's about to undergo great persecution, and he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. His counsel? Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. That is what successful resistance to our adversary looks like. Not giving up faith, even when it costs, even when it hurts, even when we lose out in this world because of it. So we're not to yield to fear, Peter says. We're not to be uh, overwhelmed by our anxieties, by the roaring of the lion. Instead, we're, continue, we're supposed to continue to trust in God who raises the dead. We don't abandon the way of Christ but we persist in our loyalty to him. So though our adversary would devour all things around us, even our very lives, we don't stop being humble. Right? We don't stop returning good for evil. We don't stop loving and rejoicing. And to do so, Peter says, we must be firm. That is, fixed, sturdy, and steadfast in our faith. Our faith cannot be an unreliable or untrustworthy companion on the journey. Our faith must be a constant friend, someone who's there to pick us up, to remind us of the destination, to point us to the one whom we belong, to whom we've confessed as Christ. It must be firm, our faith. But Peter continues, resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world, verse 9. Put simply, a faith that is alone is a faith that falters. Faith remains firm only when it's accompanied by a certain knowledge, and the knowledge is that we are not alone in our sufferings. Faith needs fellowship. And so let me just encourage you, regardless of your personal disposition, how willing or not willing you are to share details of your life. Let me just encourage you to share your sufferings with others. A brother and sister, let's just take this into a wider context, not merely that of persecution. A brother and sister whose faith is faltering, who feels like they're alone, they need your encouragement. They need to know that they are not alone. And that others in the family of God have walked the same road and can look back upon it and say, as James chapter 5, verse 11 says, the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. For faith to ultimately be firm, it needs to know that it's not alone. 
that there are others who have walked that road and that you are not alone, that you are not in isolation because truly you're not. And now let's bring this all to an end with Peter's final word here, verses 10 and 11. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter ends here with a word of consolation and comfort. He says that God has called us to his eternal glory, but that our present sufferings, whatever they may be, and whatever form they take, are only for a little while. Those are comforting words, that it's only for a little while. Peter sets the immeasurable vastness of eternal glory against the smallness of this present age, the age of death and sin. And he says that we have not been called to suffering. It's not the end, nor is it the goal of God's designs for us. We've not been called to that. Instead, we've been called to eternal glory. Our suffering in this life, be it persecution or be it simply the hardship that befalls anyone, as sparks fly upward, Job says, so man is born into trouble. It's merely a temporary affair. It's a bitter night on the road to our everlasting uh, destination. And it will pass. And the thing that takes its place, that eternal glory, will remain forever. Our suffering is without foundations, Peter means to say. It's like a vapor carried away by the wind. It disperses into nothing. But you, Peter says... God himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Verse 10. Your suffering fades. It doesn't last. But you, you do last. Because God will perfect you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. And in the end, he will establish you. You will outlive your suffering. In the ages of eternity, it will fade into a memory of a memory. Life and joy and glory will wear it out till it becomes mere threads and dust. This will come to pass, Peter says, because he who promised is faithful. So in the meantime, until we are called to that eternal glory, he says, be faithful. Trust in Christ. Serve him. Submit yourself to the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. So I invite you now as we uh, turn to the Lord's Supper, it's supposed to be always an image of that time to come. So as you take the cup and the bread and go back to your places, I just want to encourage you to meditate on that eternal glory that God has called you to. Because just a little slice of it is available to us now. So come receive the elements and I'll lead us in just one moment.